everyone. This is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Today, instead of coming to you from the uh, studio out in the wood shop out there at DTM Enterprises, we have moved indoors. Uh, something I didn't anticipate when I uh, started uh, doing this, and, and really the wood shop just became a place to do it. Um, was that my air conditioner is just fine out there for working and doing things. I actually have AC in it, but uh, it's a little loud and uh, and it feels a lot better here in this Fourth of July weekend inside the uh, the air conditioned house. So we're running from my dining room table, which is the dining room table that I speak about about that first time I got drunk. This is the table, the very table oh. that I sat at the first time I ever uh, got drunk. Wow, uh, that's in my story. Yeah, same living room, same table. So uh, let's get these little commercials out of the way real quick. The music wrapped around this is uh, by Darren Frank, and if you would, uh, Darren's in the hospital right now. So if you've got some prayers to throw out to him, uh, he's uh, got a little road of uh, recovery ahead of him. Uh, music's by him. The uh, You can go to spiritualunderground.org to get show notes for this. Uh, guest, pictures of guests, if they, uh, if they allow that, if they're okay with the picture. I, uh, you can see that there in links to the podcast, and there's also a contact me page there where you can send me feedback or uh, let me know if you want to be on the show. I can do this remotely now too, so uh, anybody out there that wants to wants to tell their story, we can do that over the over the internet and get that recorded and released. Um, Twelve Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn. It is out on in Amazon right now. There's a couple different versions of it. It's been broken into two volumes for those who may not want the whole book. First volume is uh, how the spiritual sickness uh, um, manifests in us, and then steps one, two, and three, and then the other volume is four through uh, twelve. And you can get that either way, uh, and you can get it on Kindle too. So that is more offerings out there. And if you have any woodwork kind of stuff going on, uh, you need wood, custom woodworking, you need refinishing, anything like that, uh, check me out. I've also got another business called DTM Woodwork, and we joke around about that here as being in the DTM Enterprises in the wood shop. Uh, that is a real place. So if you have any work like that that you want done, please get with me. Uh, so my guest today is a friend that I bumped into, and you've heard me talk about a, a guy named Happy, and he has a meditation shop. and. Uh, sells a lot of crystals and different things he's turned me on to he's a, he actually I've picked up quite a few things that I still can attribute to him as one of them I say at the end of these podcasts thank you for allowing me to participate in my recovery that is a derivative of what Happy told me one time when he told me that I must participate in my own recovery uh, so Happy uh, was doing a bowl thing one, one New Year's Day and it, it was a New Year's Day and this oh, guy yeah. walks in with a backpack and uh, we get to chatting, and he pulls a big bowl out of his backpack, and we get to talking. And we didn't talk about recovery that day, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I knew you were in recovery that first day. I think no, it was I later so, yeah. on that that actually happened. But uh, we kind of made a little connection, and I, and I like doing that. And I met you that day, and then we found out we were both in recovery, and we found out we had another connection in small world stuff around town. So yeah. uh, I don't know if we'll get into that. I'm, I'm wondering if that's appropriate or not, because he's. Uh, but we'll just slide through that. So, uh, since then we've been friends. You've just celebrated five, right? Five years. Yeah. Yep. So just uh, just last month, is that right? May. Uh, yeah. May Too twenty. Much. May twenty sixth yeah. is my official birthday. Yeah. So that. So to get into that. Yeah. We'll start with your sobriety date. 
Yeah, sobriety date's May 26, 2014. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, Dave's got a nickname, and I don't if you want to... Yeah, Dave the Dog Man is what most people call me. And yeah, that, for a long time. And that is because? Because I'm a professional dog trainer. I've been blessed uh, to live my passion for the last 16 years. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. It's a guy named Myron Hardesty from Weeds of Eden that gave me that name a long time ago. Oh, yeah. And uh, my friend and herbalist. Love that guy. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but... As my my joke about it is, I'm not a dog of a man. I just train dogs for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, well, that's a. Uh, at some point, somebody said that to me. You know, when I was talking about you, and they throw the nickname out, and I had not, I wouldn't had made the connection yet. You know, I right. knew, and I was like, I knew you did train dogs, so it took a minute, but I didn't hear any. I didn't know it was like an uh, official nickname, like like our friend we just spoke about a minute ago, Army Mark. That is an official nickname. <laughs> right. When you say that, people know yeah. who you're talking about. Well, it's now officially my business as well, so uh, anytime you want to know any information on that, it's davidthedogman.com. Just pop that website out. Uh, about two months ago, went out on my own, so well, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I saw it come out too. That is really exciting. I a lot yep. of friends and a lot of friends in recovery around me doing a lot of exciting things, and it's just like it just uh, jacks me up, juices me up to yeah. watch it happen and and to watch these people uh, come from what they were to where they're at today and start actually chasing some dreams and catching some dreams. Yeah, man, just doing uh, the next right thing, and God keeps blessing me. It's wonderful. Yeah, super cool, man. So it's DaveTheDogMan.com. Yep, you got it. Good on deal. Facebook, Instagram, and uh, that's it at this point. Yeah, cool. So, um, you know, we kind of do the same little thing where we do what it was, what happened, you know, what was like, what happened, uh, what's like now. Uh, one of the things I do like to talk about, and I make sure that I, I try. Uh, so far, I've not had anybody uh, dispute me on this at the at the other side of the microphone yet. But mm-hmm. I knew that I had something going on with me before I ever took the first drink. And that's an important thing for me to talk about here that that gets into this thing where, you know, it wasn't that I started drinking and became an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had that I had that spiritual malady thing kind of in some kind of core that some from some trauma things that happened to me when I was younger. And by trauma, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't mean violent stuff. I just mean some things that would really rock my rock my world and, and made me come to not understand what, you know, how to react to that stuff and, uh, and, and didn't have outlets to speak of it, to share it to people. So I didn't have any way, anything. I did had no tool to do anything with it but stuff it, and then it sat down there and cooked. Yeah. So uh, I actually like to start out, you know, uh, with about like where you were, where you were raised, how you brought up, what sure. kind of what kind of family life was, and that kind of thing before we get to yeah. most of the time. There's some of that before we ever get to the picking up the. Yeah, I would agree. Stuff. There was definitely something going on way before that first drink at 13, and. Uh, so I was born and raised in Franklin, Pennsylvania, a little town about 90 miles north of Pittsburgh. Hmm. Uh, when I, the joke is, when I was five, my dad gave me a high five and said, see you later. But the true story is my dad is one of us, and, uh, and he is, uh, had, had a lot of challenges uh, throughout his life, even uh, without the drinking. And so at five years old, uh, my parents split, and so I was raised by my mom. And three sisters and two cats, um, which were even the cats were females. So I was raised with four women. Uh, well, six including the cats. Uh, so grew up in a small town, basically, uh, really kind of isolated as a kid. You know, as you brought that up just a minute ago, I thought, man, what were some of my behaviors as a kid that I was trying to stuff, you know, my emotions, and I kind of hid in television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just kind of zone out to movies, and that was kind of my getaway. Uh, and then 
uh, anytime I was with groups of friends as a youngster, you know, we were either in the woods or in the river. It was great because I lived in the Allegheny River Valley. So oh, yeah. we made a decision every day when we went outside. You go three blocks to the river or one block to the woods. And uh, But even when I was hanging out with those groups of people, it just it never felt right. What my The thoughts that were coming into my head, you know, and my, my actions and just how fast I was acting and reacting to everything around me. And now that I look back, it's a whole bunch of fear. You know, and uh, swinging on grapevines as a kid, I had to talk myself into it for a long time before I did it. And I can mm. remember just being like, oh, my God. And it was exhilarating, but at the same time, it was full throttle. And I could see my buddies just be like, what's the big deal, man? It's just a grapevine. Just go have some fun. But, you know, it was like a its whole adventure to me. Just the yeah. volume was turned up on everything. That's a very good, yeah, that's a very good way to put it. I've heard somebody else say that, too. Yeah. I like that. And uh, so... Moving forward, uh, middle school is where I started to get into trouble. Well, no, I started getting in trouble before that. I was about 12 years old and started acting out. I remember uh, my gym teacher, Mr. Hanby. I'll never forget that guy. Very militant guy. Uh, still to this day, if you tell me what to do, my first response is no. Yeah. <laughs> One of my character defects is definitely defiance. And uh, he always used to make us put our heels together and toes out. You know, just like in a military, a tin hut, my toes were always together and my heels were always out. I was always doing the exact opposite of everything that he wanted. Uh, it was just for attention. And I can look back at that now and, and, and know that. Didn't know it at the time. Uh, but I used to show off. I was a class clown, hyperactive all over the place. Even sitting here talking to you, I got, thanks for having the stones on the table. Yeah. Sitting here playing with something. I'm always fidgeting or doing something just to keep my my body occupied hence why i like yoga different conversation but uh so i was always acting out class clown uh as far as learning went i could learn anything a teacher put in front of me uh but i didn't pay enough attention study enough uh to really uh, do well on tests just because again i was all over the place but if i actually put myself if i applied myself then it was pretty easy yeah more of my problem was whether if I was actually interested in it or not, if I was interested in learning right. it or not. Yeah. No, I would definitely agree with that. Because uh, if I am interested, buddy, I can learn it in a I heartbeat. I can eat it up, yeah. Right. I will become a pro. <laughs> exactly. Um, so at when, then I went to middle school. That's a different school. My uh, grade school in, in Pennsylvania is through sixth grade. And then that's, that was two blocks from my house. And then the middle school was actually connected to the high school. Uh, so we started being bused a couple hours, or not a couple hours, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, a couple miles, what I meant to say. And uh, that's where things got really intense because now I went from a school of, well, we had 30 kids a class, six classes, so you're, you know, not talking 300 kids or so, but now the high school is 1,000, 1,500 yeah. and with the high school and the middle school. So now the volume got turned up on everything, and my fear got turned up too. As now that I look back on it, and uh, that's when uh, I'll kind of fast forward into my my first drink. Uh, unless you heard something there, you want to kind of dive into? Yeah, no. Uh, my uh, first drink I took was in uh, was hidden in my house. We'll just put it that way. Uh, it was a bottle of whiskey, and I found it. And uh, and I remember taking a drink, and then I remember uh, not liking the taste, but man, I got warm. Yeah. And 
and the squirrels in my brain started to run a little bit slower. And I just remember being able to kind of calm down and relax, and I went to sleep. That is one of my other escapes. Um, if I Sleep? Oh, yeah. Yep. If I got something that's really stressing me out, buddy i'll just go take a nap if i can yeah and, uh, one yeah, that's uh, me too that's uh, i've listed a couple of things you've said and we're on, we're on we're in alignment on a few on quite a few points there and that's right. and that's another one the the well the fidgeting mm-hmm. and the being able to handle any class that i really wanted to you know and I, but it was a matter of whether if i wanted to put my my attention there or not right and then uh yeah i, I was talking to somebody not too long i was talking to somebody today Yep. about you know i'll just say it my daughter's in trouble right now she's sleeping a day away and i remember whenever i would like get in a pinch and be in trouble right. that's what i would do i would just sleep yep. just sleep just to just to escape yep. any kind of conflict or anything coming back in i had to hear it from mom and dad again or mm-hmm. just shut off man and i do it now too when i get emotionally invested uh I'll, there's one thing and this is sometimes i learn to do that in a healthy manner too and i would the best you you are too because you used to i take naps Mm-hmm. fairly frequently this will this emotional exchange with mm-hmm. me and you will give me a point where i will need about 15 20 minutes of downtime afterwards just yep. to reset uh, there's an emotional output that happens that that there's a website there's science behind that it's called the energy project um, and they've studied many many businesses all around the world and especially in japan every 90 minutes of interaction you need 15 minutes of rest hmm. and that is a scientific proven fact energy project or well, I've learned that I have to do that after this. I have to put a little window. It would be that my little, one of my other, uh, oh, I joke around and say one of my other, my drug of choice in recovery seem, seems to be busyness. Right. <laughs> um, I would agree with that. I'm raising yeah. my hand for people yeah. who can't see me. I keep myself really busy. So what I want to do is fold this thing up when I'm done and go to the next thing. And right. I've learned that I can't do that. I actually have set aside time after the podcast to have mm-hmm. a little quiet time. Uh, whether if I actually go to sleep or not, I yep. will go into meditative type of state or something and get a little, get 15, 20 minutes. I don't need much, but right. good for you, a man. little recovery time after. That was one of my problems in my old job is because I would go for four to five hours sometimes just straight. And then by the time I was done, I was rocked. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I love my business now because it's an hour and a half, two hours of full gauge interaction, but I can give everything. And then I've got about an hour to an hour and a half break and then do it again. So yeah. I hear you, man. It's good stuff. Yeah. So we were at to talking about uh, going to sleep when we were in stressful situations, I think. It's, oh, you said uh, alcohol. You drank yeah, and it made you be able to go to sleep. Yeah. And uh, it was easier sleep. I remember it, before alcohol, I would like hold my arm in the air, or be doing curls or something just to try to calm myself down enough to go to sleep. And the brain never shut off. But this, dude, I was out. Yeah, and and then when I woke up, I was like, "Wow, that was an experience. I want to do that again uh, because it was an escape on top of an escape." Now, in hindsight, I can look at that. Yeah, and uh, but I ended up uh, taking that hidden alcohol enough or drinking enough of it that uh, my mom found out about it. Let's put it that way, and got in trouble. And got grounded, but being grounded in my house really wasn't a consequence because my mom worked three jobs, God bless her, to support four kids. So uh, it was, well, you can't go out and play with your friends. You can't watch TV. Nobody was there to reinforce it. Yeah. So it wasn't really a consequence, so I just kind of kept doing what I was doing. Um, and then I got busted for underage drinking uh, at 13, I think. 
We had Red Dog Beer. Never forget that. And a guy named nicknamed Red bought it for us, ironically <laughs> enough. Yeah. Guy was 21, 22 years old, drove a Mustang. Red, if you're out there, what's up, man? I don't remember his last name, but uh, he bought a bunch of us kids, you know, beer one night. And that interesting angle there, too, that, that you would buy, that you would do that for uh, for kids. Uh, yeah. Uh, we had people that we did that we knew that would buy us alcohol, too, when we were, you know, we were young, too young. Right. And it's just like, I mean, it's one thing to go in a liquor store when you were 18, 19, maybe, and pull off 21, but right. 13? No. No. <laughs> and he's just like, here, here's a 12-pack. We're like, cool, thanks, man. Yeah. And uh, Pennsylvania hillbilly for you. (laughs) But uh, my friend Bobby uh, ended up puking in the street in Polk, Pennsylvania. Polk, Pennsylvania, I think maybe 600 people in that whole town. There's one street and one cop. And he sits in one place. And Bobby puked like 300 feet from right where he sits. You know, it was kind of like, well, that sucks. You know, so all of us kids scatter. We go and try to hide. Well, my silly drunk ass hides in my friend's, uh, his grandma's. We were in a bathroom. There's two of us in there, and the cops ended up bringing Bobby back and, you know, searching the house and found us. Uh, again, got grounded. No big deal. Uh, the real consequence from that one came. Uh, I'm going to back up. There was a time I drank before that. Uh, I remember sneaking, we used to sneak out of my buddy's house and go over to the high school and uh, just play around, fart around, do whatever we were doing. Like sneak out at night? Yeah, like sneak out of his house. and We'd say we were going camping in the backyard, and then, yeah, we were gone. And uh, there was trails all the way from his house to the high school. And uh, anyway, we ran into a couple older guys that were four-wheeling, had a couple beers, drank a couple beers, went over there, and we used to climb on top of the roof of the high school. Well, there was only a pole that you would climb up, so you had to kind of shimmy up it. And I'd had a couple beers, and uh, I slid down, and I cut my hand, my pinky finger. I'll never forget that. And I remember bleeding, and I remember looking at it and going, that probably hurts really bad, but, man, I don't feel that. And that was kind of my aha moment of, whoa, alcohol not only eases the emotional side of it, it also takes away that physical pain. And me being me, I was a highly sensitive kid, uh, still a highly sensitive adult. Anything, again, was at higher volume, so pain was just ridiculous. Uh, I didn't like it. I wanted to run away from it, physical or emotional. And so that was kind of the physical side to the alcohol. I thought, wow, okay, well, if I'm in pain, I can drink, which led to other things later on. Uh, Anyway, got busted for that underage drinking. Uh, Got caught, I think, one other time as well. And then the consequence came from that underage drinking when I was 16. I moved from Franklin, Pennsylvania to here in the good old Louisville, Kentucky, Oh, wait, we're in northern, southern Indiana yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. Sorry. But anyway, the Kentucky area. And I uh, moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And I uh, got my driver's license in Pennsylvania. But when I went to transfer it here in Louisville, they looked at that underage drinking as a DUI. Really? Yep. 16 years old, man. And so, you know, I went uh, before the driver's license bureau and was like, look, this is an underage drinking. Why are you looking at it this way? They were like, you know, we're looking at it as a DUI, so I had to go high-risk insurance. Houston Insurance. I don't know if they're still in existence. Yeah, I'll never forget that. So I had to pay over $200 a month for high-risk insurance because my mom's like, look, you're the one that did this. Here you go. You get to pay it. Well, me being me and driven and wanting to drive, I said, okay. Well, I went and got a job. I actually always worked. Uh, I guess that's a backup, too. When I was 12, 
got my first job, uh, 5.30 in the morning. I was a paper out, mm-hmm. and I uh, did that for two years. So I started working when I was 12 and never really stopped. Haven't really stopped. Uh, but I went out and got a job. Um, I think then was when Dixie, maybe. What was it? No, I take that back. Cafe Jopa. Yep. It was a restaurant over on Goose Creek Road. Hmm. And I started washing dishes. And uh, so I started washing dishes over there, made enough money to, to pay for that insurance, and that was about it. But I got to drive, baby. And I uh, bought a 19... That was when I was 17. I bought a 1984 Ford Ranger, four on the floor, rust-colored, more rust than color. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, I, I worked enough to pay for that insurance, but that was my first consequence from drinking. Hmm. And uh, real consequence, anyway. It hit yeah. my pocketbook pretty yeah, heavy. Right. And uh, from there, started drinking with buddies. Um, uh, it didn't, it mainly weekends, but then it kind of progressed, you know, to one night during the week uh, in high school. Didn't really dabble in anything else in high school other than, than booze. Hmm. Um, a little bit of the green stuff here and there, but yep. not much. Um, but the drinking got real heavy uh, my senior year. Um, that's where, you know, before school, uh, take a shot or two and be joking around the parking lot, hanging out, whatever. Then halfway through the day, I had a, a, uh, a well, what did they call it? Oh, it was an aide for one of the classes, but I knew the teacher real well. So I just never went. Well, we went out on lunch and maybe drank sometimes. Sometimes we didn't. Then I would always try to come back for my fifth period, but I was always late and the door was always locked. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Ockerson, I remember that pre-calculus, I think. Locked you out. Yep. Oh, yeah. Locked out, man. So then I made it to sixth period and the day was done. But after school, I played soccer uh, for Ballard uh, my junior year. And uh, they were a bunch of party kids. And when I first moved to, to Louisville, it was between my sophomore and my junior year. You know, that was a big shift. I went from a town of 8,000 to a school of 2,000. Yeah. And uh, the demographic of, of people um, and just the volume of the intensity of everything that was going on. And Yeah, I would count that kind of stuff as like and um, broaden my definition of trauma. You know, I thought it had to be something else. But like those shifts in your being, when you get picked up and plucked out almost like an alien has reached down and plucked you out of a 2000 or an 8000 person city right and throwed you in a city like this with where you got a quarter of that in your school alone yep that's a that's there, that has an impact on you yeah now i don't know if it's really fair to say trauma but but i don't know what other i'm trying to find some other single word that would wrap it up and that seems to be the one that keeps on falling to me as i as i look as i look at it it's definitely a, a paradigm shift. Um, it's intense. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of words come up. Yeah. But the if if I were to look at what what the trauma would be, if there is, uh, it would look something like you know my my high school friend. I just saw him, man, two months ago. He drove down here. He and his wife. Oh yeah. Oh God, I love him. The Baker family. Um, we grew up together in the same church. I, I grew up Episcopalian. And if you don't know what that is, it's Catholic light or half the guilt. <laughs> anyway, probably shouldn't say that on a podcast, but whatever. That's okay. Jokes are fine. <laughs> so 
So yeah, and, so what happened is like, and that's what the traumatic part of it to me is, is where you have these established relationships, these friendships and stuff, and all of a sudden they're gone, man. And yeah. that is because there's that guy that says that thing about the opposite of addiction is connection, you know? Yeah. So you've got this connection with this peer group and everything, and you know where you stand in it, you right. know the pecking order and all that, and all of a sudden you're plucked out of that and you got to do that all over again. And when you land someplace new, man, you're a new kid on the block, mm -hmm. you got to go to earn and all that. You right, know, that street cred, so to speak, you know, yeah. and, and being trying to find out who you are and where your place is, and that, and, and that can be traumatic to a kid, you know. And you know, with that said, one thing that I can still do to this day is is the chameleon, what it says in the book. And, yeah, you know, and shifting gears into that di different uh, groups. And I can even look back when I first moved here, the one group I was hanging out with, and then I went and hung out with another group, and then another group, and then kind of circle back around to that original group, you yeah. know? Yeah. But but you're right in the fact of, um, you know, having established and comfortability and, and feeling safe. I think that's the biggest thing, yeah. you know, and that's the, the biggest thing for uh, that I've learned in recovery is that fear and that, that feeling of safety, you yeah. know, that it was a false sense of safety with, with chemicals, but... You know, I, I knew what was coming next, and the next thing you know, I had no clue what was coming. Right, yeah. And uh, and it was uh, it was definitely a lot of fear. And then once I got into the high school, number one, I was lost. The numbers, the way the rooms are numbered uh, in Ballard High School makes absolutely no sense. And so I'm sitting there as a junior in high school looking at this map, and I got this freshman looking next to me, and we're going, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going. You know, so I was kind of buddies with the freshman. We were all yeah. lost together. Yeah, we were all new. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, so I established myself there. I, I ran with two different crowds. I ran with one crowd for a while that was more of kind of a, a Christian group that – uh, really didn't drink or really carry on a whole lot. There was a clubhouse we all hung out at, and uh, I had a girlfriend. Um, and so, you know, I super connected with them, and it felt safe. It felt very familiar to the group that I grew up with, you know, in Pennsylvania. Um, still partied on the weekends a little bit, but nothing too crazy. Um, and then I parted ways with her, and when I did that, I parted ways with that whole group. And then I started hanging out with a totally different demographic. And we like to drink. And yeah. that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. That group was my senior year. But my junior year was, we'll call it my good year maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even then, I wasn't really drinking alcoholically except for on the weekends as far as drinking until I just got out of control. I mean, I guess drinking in the morning and midday is drinking kind of alcoholically, but a little bit. Especially with pre even legal age right know, or not maybe pre-adulthood you know right. not even 18 yet yeah so yeah i was an alcoholic but and, i know what uh, you mean the disease just progresses and it's not at the where it ended up being i mean i was able to maintain my stuff back then you know right. i primarily did my drinking on the weekends because frankly i couldn't do school and drink mm -hmm. <laughs> just the two things didn't go and the consequences were too high for me to chance that Right. But I could pull that shit off on the weekends. Oh, yeah. I could rip and run, baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I was working in uh, the restaurant business. I worked in the restaurant business for a long time. Uh, being an alcoholic in the restaurant business was kind of the best fit for me. Yeah. Because everybody else was, too. Well, I don't yeah. know if they're alcoholics, but they like to drink. We'll put it that way. Yeah, certainly a uh, incubator environment kind of thing yeah. for, for us, for sure. I yeah. know quite a few people who have come along through that. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I, I like to hide. 
And uh, I'll never forget, I did have one summer, I worked for Kentucky Fried Chicken. They deliver. And uh, I did deliveries for them. <laughs> and uh, that was, I made a lot of money. I ended up managing for a little while. And I'll never forget, I can still almost feel it today. Drank a whole bunch of Jim Beam the night before. And then the next day, it was a day like today where it was 95 degrees God, outside. Golly, it turns my stomach. And I had that old 84 S10 that I was delivering in, no AC. You know, and I mean, just pouring sweat, just Jim Beam, just oozing out of my body. The entire to sour feeling. That's oh, yeah. Walking me. back into that hot kitchen in the KFC, it was just like, it's just terrible. I just could not wait to get off work. That's one thing I I never liked was sweating the day after a heavy day of drinking. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, I didn't like I, I, Yeah, when you first started saying it, I instantly flashed back. Like, right. Oh. <laughs> like, that'll help keep me sober today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, I don't know, kind of know where I was. but uh, Senior in high school, yep. drinking was picking up, moved crowds, was starting to hang out with this other element. Yep. And uh, and they all like to drink, man. So we just uh, we did a lot of drinking and a lot of carrying on and hanging out with uh, my younger sister at the time too. He was dating a guy in my my class. She's three years younger than I am. She was a freshman and I was a senior. Mm. And uh, I remember getting drunk and getting in his face and uh, you know telling him, "You ever hurt my sister?" And blah blah, you know, drunk older brother shit. Yeah, that was one of my amends. I'll never forget that amends. That was a good one. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, no real heavy consequences through my senior year. You know, I think my mom knew we were drinking, but she couldn't stop us anymore. She was just like, whatever, do your thing. Uh, college is where things really took off. Uh, because in college, now I was completely on my own. I had nobody to tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, I took one year off of work. I saved a bunch of money uh, the year before. Uh, and working at KFC, delivering chicken, and in the restaurant business. I guess that was, I guess that's where I made all my money. My, my memory's kind of foggy. Yeah. That tells you I had a little party in to do that summer. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I got to college, and I took a year off of work to focus on uh, school. I went to Eastern Kentucky University, and uh, my major was police administration. Hmm. I've always loved behavior, uh, always loved behavior. And what I really wanted to do was... Uh, being an investigator uh, in the FBI. Uh, that was kind of my one of my dreams as a kid. My other dream was to be uh, Jack Hanna, Hanna's, Jack Hanna's Animal Adventures, yeah. if anybody's never seen that. Yeah. And uh, so I had the animal deal going on, and I love behavior. And so I, with police administration, um, EKU is the number two in the country. Harvard's number one. Or it used to be that way. I don't know if it's still that way. So I was not getting into Harvard. <laughs> I did have a decent GPA. I don't remember what it was now. But uh, anyway, so I went to Eastern Kentucky. I wasn't working, but I was. it was another, another paradigm shift, another, you know, picking up from everything I knew and being dropped in another place. And, if, yeah. you know, if that's, again, that kind of trauma sense that you're bringing up. Uh, I knew one guy there. He was a friend of a friend. Turned it out he was a pilot, and they have pilot school down there in eastern Kentucky. And the first day I was on campus, I ran into him in my in my dorm. I'd met him maybe twice. He's like, what are you doing today? I was like, I don't know, learning what the hell to do at college, man. And uh, he goes, you want to go up in a plane? I was like, well, hell yeah, I want to go on a plane. Yeah, man. So it's a little 172 Cessna, a little single prop plane. 
And he and I went up there and we're flying around. He's like, all right, I got to do some maneuvers. So I'm thinking up, down, left, right. Oh, no. He was practicing stalls, which means you shut the engine off in the air and then have to restart. And I'm like, what the are you doing, man? It's like, I told you how to practice some maneuvers. I thought, I, I was like, I thought the plane just yeah, stopped like, and we were about to die. I was like, what are you talking about? You want to talk about some fear? And I remember, so we got down and uh, met a friend of his uh, that was Sigma Chi fraternity. And he was going, he's a pilot as well. And he was going up in a six seater uh, double prop Aztec. And he's like, you guys want to go up in a plane? I was like, are you doing maneuvers? <laughs> I was like, he goes, yeah. I was like, are you going to be stalling the plane? And he's like, probably at some point. I was like, thank you for telling me now. Yes, I'll go. I'll go. <laughs> and so we ended up going up uh, in that plane. I had a blast, man. Uh, we came back down. We went to the fraternity house. And I remember he pitched me a beer. And that was off and running once again. And I ended up uh, hanging with those guys for a while. I ended up pledging Sigma Chi. Uh, I was in the fraternity for, well, pledging for a month and a half, maybe, something like that. Mm. And I met a, I would live on the 14th floor of my dorm, but I met a bunch of guys on my 13th floor through another one of the pledges. Um, oh, my God, I cannot remember his name. Anyway, so uh, the guys on the 13th floor, they liked to drink and party like I did, and so did the fraternity. So I was either hanging out with the Pledge Brothers and the Active Brothers, or I was hanging out on the 13th floor. Yeah. And uh, just migrate to that. Oh, yeah. It's a magnetism. Oh, man. I mean, as soon as anybody says, hey, you want a drink? Yep. Let's do it, dude. And I was off and running. And uh, ended up getting into a fight with an alumni at a bar from Sigma Chi at one point. And I was just like, why am I in this fraternity? Bullshit. And like, it just, it didn't make sense to me, like all of a sudden. Hmm. And so I went to the the guys in the fraternity and I was like, you know, I, I just don't think this is for me. And in hindsight, they were asking me to do work. Um, they were asking me to do memorizations and things like that about the history of Sigma Chi. And man, I didn't, I didn't want to learn anything. Yeah. My cop out was this. You know, this guy I didn't like that was an alumni, blah, blah, blah. He said something to me I didn't like. He hurt my feelings. I don't know. Probably said something about hazing. Or, and my fear kicked in, and, and I just went AWOL. That's the first time I've ever talked about that. Thanks, man. <laughs> and uh, so I de-pledged. Well, what still stayed strong was those guys down on the 13th floor. So I would wake up in the morning, literally go downstairs and start hanging with them. And then I would hang with them pretty much all day. I went to class sometimes, sometimes I didn't. But I was always looking forward to, hey, wrestling's on tonight. It's Monday. All right, we got to get a bottle. Let's drink. Well, Tuesday, well, I'm hungover from Monday night wrestling. Let's get a bottle. We got to drink again. And it just turned into almost every single day, if not every single day. Yep. When I speak about that, I talk about like my weeks collapsed on me. You know, it went from drinking on Friday and Saturdays, and then adding Sundays, and I don't know if this is exactly the way it went or not, but it went something like this, mm-hmm. and then the back then, and Thursdays became, and then we drank into Monday, and then before long, it just collapsed on me, and before long, I was pretty much drinking every night. Yep. Whether if it was a lot or a little, mm-hmm. I was having a few anyway. Yep. Yeah, there wasn't a, it was one of those things, oh, it's a school night, so I'll only have two. That yeah. never happened. Yeah. Yeah, my roommate, I just remember this. I always had a bottle, uh, 1.75, in my closet. And I remember my roommate, and I would be sitting there like, man, can you sleep? No, I can't sleep either. Let's have a, you know, take a couple shots. That'll help us go to sleep. Next thing you know, it's three or four hours yeah, later. Yeah, you're drunk. And we've got 
half a bottle of the 1.75 gone. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's that, uh, that, those two keynotes of, of, of what alcoholism is defined by as it's been taught to me is as mm-hmm. if I've never been able to quit on my own yep. entirely and do I lose control of how much I drink once I start drinking. Yep. Get that one in the body phenomenon of craving kicks in yeah. and boom. boom. And go, I'm going. Damn. Yep. I only meant to drink a few. Yeah, that's all I was doing. I only meant to have one. Right. I'm just going to go out in the bar and have a beer and I'll go home. Yeah. Uh, that's impossible. Yeah. Uh, for this guy, anyway. Me too. And uh, so... I guess it was my second semester. I was sitting on a rooftop, uh, and we'd been drinking, and somebody started passing around a glass pipe uh, with a little good old Mary Jane in it. And that's the first time, not the first time I ever smoked, but the first time I ever got high, Hmm. Uh, like for real. And was like, whoa, everything just shut off. But then it got real loud again, too. But it was like fun, loud, and intense, and mm. I was experiencing everything that was going on around me. That became one of my demons eventually, but initially it was I enjoyed it because I was totally present, totally aware, and was just like, "Wow, this is intense. This is fun." Um, and then once I did that, then it was either or, or a combination of both. Just from then on. Yeah. Um, I went many years doing both. Yeah. Always had some pot on me. Right. And uh, I ended up being the guy that you'd come up to and ask, hey, what do you got? Yeah. And uh, so that was an interesting time in my life. We'll just put it that way. But um, Interesting enough, that stopped working for me quite a long time ago. Yeah. And it began to put me to sleep. Hmm. And I enjoyed my drinking too much to be having early checkouts. Yeah. And so I started putting that aside, and I started using it just for that nightcap kind of thing before I'm going to go sleep at night. Right. Uh, if I if I tried to you know if I tried too early in the party, party's over for night night. <laughs> yeah. Well, my issue with it was eventually it sped me up. Hmm. Um, it didn't slow me down. But that was after my introduction to hallucinogens, uh, to LSD and to shrooms. Once I did acid for the first time. Then any time I smoked after that, it sent me into that realm, mm. which some people are like, man, that must be great. I was like, mm, no. not exactly, because my brain would go so fast and so hard that it would grab a hold of something. And one of my character defects is paranoia, uh, that everybody's out to get me. That's a shadow piece that I carry with me and always have. And that's where the marijuana turned on me, uh, because that's when it got really loud. And uh, since we're on a podcast called Spiritual Underground, there's uh, a spiritual side of me that I've, I've seen visions my entire life. And once I got into hallucinogens and was able to see them clearer, they never truly went away. Hmm. Um, and you can call it an awakening, you can call it whatever you might say, but when I'm, when I'm around people, and especially back in that day, around people that were up to no good, I could not only feel it, I could hear it, but I could see it. Hmm. And in that world, that's that's dangerous. And so... Makes me wonder a little bit about some of the stuff maybe I didn't understand because I I did a lot of hallucinogens myself over the years. And I really, really liked them. And I had a lot of good experience with a lot lot of times. Yeah, yeah. I really can't say I had any bad experiences with it, actually. Personally, I didn't. (laughs) I saw people have bad experiences that were with me. Uh 
uh, I didn't personally, you know, of course they rub off on me a little bit, but I wonder about like some of the things of that, that heightened awareness where you could see beyond like this realm. Yeah. Well, I've, I definitely could do that even before it. Uh, but that just sent it into hyperdrive. Interesting. And, uh, so anytime I would, anytime I would smoke, I would get close to that realm again. Yeah. And if I were around people that just didn't have the right energy, then I would start freaking out and just be like, ah, I got to get the hell out of here. Or if I would have some negative experiences and then I would smoke, it would just hyper focus on it. Mm. And, uh, and, but my, the way that I was hardwired, the way I am hardwired, it would always be negative. It was never like, hey, I'm happy, joyous, and free, woohoo. No, it was like, oh my God, this is blah, 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 blah. And I would just pick it apart. Yeah. And uh, so it turned, uh, it was fun for a long time, and then it turned not fun. Yeah. You know, just like drinking. Yeah. It was, I had a blast with it for a lot of years, man. We had yeah. some really good times raising hell. I was talking to a gal a minute ago because we're doing some, I'm in some podcasting communities now you know it's interesting that now that i've opened myself up to like this recovery community and and have invested myself and i'm finding these new communities to be the yoga community yeah well i'm in podcasting community where we share ideas and do that kind of stuff and i use that exact same line some of those same lines with her a minute ago uh she's a recovery from divorce person so Mm. that whole recovery angle tripped me Mm -hmm. i thought you because i'm interested in like different kinds of recovery not just recovery from alcohols and drugs just anything that where we're recovering our spirit somehow or another where we get Mm -hmm. this trauma event but uh yeah it was a lot of fun until it wasn't right and that's you brought up different recovery groups uh the first recovery group i ever walked into other than alateen as a kid my parents took me to alateen i don't really remember it other than it was in the basement of a methodist church and the walls were blue why i remember that i don't know interesting but (laughs) um and they smoked in there i remember that uh was emotions anonymous Mm. Uh, my dad used to run a uh, emotions anonymous meeting here in lowell it's kind of filtered out now but that's one thing we all have and we're all powerless over yeah and And that is our other little small world connection was your dad was the day that i realized that i'd known your dad from a different meeting and i'd known you from another completely different world and then one day i realized you two were father and son (laughs) and you're like oh there we go yeah (laughs) and uh so that's the first meeting i ever walked anyway i'm kind of jumping to recovery that's okay that's okay uh, yeah, so I went in there, and then I went to Al-Anon, and then I thought I could get sober through Al-Anon. I thought it was everybody else's fault, and uh, guess what? In Al-Anon, they're tricky suckers because they do the 12 steps, too, and I'm like, no, they have to do the 12 steps, not me. <laughs> and uh, So anyway, I ended up in AA. Um, so the hallucinogens, and it yeah. was fun, and then it wasn't. Then it wasn't. Uh, I got a DUI in college. Uh, I was taking a girl down to Crystal Burgers. We don't have those up here, but they're down there, kind of like White Castles, mm-hmm. but worse. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had a 19, God, what year was that truck? It was a 1997. No, that couldn't have been it, because that's the year it was. It was 1997. Anyway, early 90s, Nissan King Cab 4x4 with 31-inch tires on it. I bought it. That was my sophomore year of college because I worked for an irrigation company that summer. Um, and my drinking actually slowed down that summer uh, because of uh, – so that was to be my freshman or sophomore year. Anyway, uh, it slowed down a little bit because uh, I was outside common, all the time. What's that? a common thing in here? 
is that the timelines never work out. You see people trying to, de- try yeah. to dissect these timelines. No, and try to, people get hung up on them real bad. I try to just like, you know, whatever. Just, sh- just shuffle on down the path because exactly what year or exactly what time or whatever. Yeah, I'm getting but lost. I know I noticed that's a typical, as I sit here in this chair and, and invest myself into listening to these stories in a long form situation yeah. here, you know, that's one thing that seems to be common is that we really want to put that. I think it's a, in, in, us, in our head, we want to put that timeline together, yeah. you know, for, for me. Really matter. And, uh, and, and it's not so much that you're trying to get that point across to anybody else, but right. there's a vagueness back there. And you mm-hmm. mentioned a minute ago about having that drank a lot that year. Right. I look at it like there's this curtain almost. Yeah. It's really hard for me to see beyond that curtain today. Mm-hmm. And the further away I get from that curtain, which is really my sobriety date almost, it's some fashion of that. It may not be that day, but it's yeah. it's in there. <laughs> yeah. The timeline doesn't work exactly. Yeah. The further away I get down through there, some of the stuff becomes clearer beyond the curtain, mm-hmm. and some of it becomes foggier. <laughs> right. It's That's interesting kinda... dynamic how, how that, that trying and to get around that. Thank you for that. Because I watch people over their wheels are turning. Right. Right? And they're really like, trying to work this out in their head. And, you know, the, the one reason I want to work it out is not even because I don't, because I don't want to lie, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not. I'm trying not to be a liar, cheater, and con anymore. And yeah. I'm sitting here, and I'm like, I think I just lied to you. That wasn't between my freshman and sophomore year, right. but I, it wasn't, you know, bold face deal. But yeah. anyway, yeah, you want to be accurate, right? That's kind of what came up for me. Uh, so anyway, I sidetracked you by doing that, but you were talking about the no. Truck I appreciate that DUI. because thank you. That helped. Um, so anyway, got a DUI in college, taking a girl, uh, three Nissan King Cab four by four, thirty one is tires. The medians down on the bypass in eastern Kentucky are uh, about two feet high. And when you take a big old truck over top of one of those and land on the other side in the oncoming traffic and a cop sits there, he pulls you over. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you been drinking tonight? No, not at all, sir. I definitely had been and some other stuff. And So anyway, I got uh, put in jail. That was one of my moments that the town drunk was passed out on the drunk tank floor and i'm sitting there and of course i'm you know scared to death i'm like oh my god i'm in the drunk tank i'm like blah 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 and i remember he woke up and i had met him because he lived next door to a friend of mine and Mm. so we kind of met and passed and drinking one night carrying on and all of a sudden he wakes up and he's like, I remember you, you motherfucker. And just starts ranting. And I'm like, me? Yeah, man. Oh, we had a beer together. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and then when I'm sitting there hanging out, talking with the town drunk about having a beer with him. And it was in one, the drunk tank. In the drunk tank. And it was one of those awareness moments of, whoa, maybe I got something going on here. Hmm. And then I was like, nah, man, I'm just in college. I made all kinds of excuses. You know, it's like, I'm all right. And, uh, Got out the next morning, you know, had to go get a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Of course, I had a buddy that his dad was a lawyer in town, and so, you know, that charge ended up going away. Yeah, that's another thing. It seems like we have a little thing where we have this community around us of people who know what to do when you get in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, don't worry, man. My dad, my buddy's dad's a lawyer. (laughs) I used him last week. You know, that was one of the funniest things in sobriety. When I was hanging out with people outside of the rooms, and we were in conversation, and somebody said, so-and-so went to jail. And I was like, oh, I remember being in jail. That sucked. And they were like, you've been to jail? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I thought everybody had. And they were like, who the hell you been hanging out with, man? And I was like, ah, oh, crap. Another one of those aha moments. Yeah. Not everybody's been to jail, yeah. you know? And uh, But then it, it made me hyper-focus on who the heck was I really hanging out with. But... Um, didn't stop me at all. So, uh, did you come out of those kind of experiences trying to manage it after that? Did you have some period of like 
okay, I'm gonna manage better now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was. You know what? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna drink during the week anymore. I'm. I'm not gonna. If you I know I'm gonna. Oh yeah. If I know it. I'm gonna drink, I'm not driving. You know, I don't want to go to jail again. I would start and stop all the time. I'd wake up. I'm never drinking again. You know. Or yeah. I'm not drinking until Friday, and it was Tuesday, and it never happened. Yeah. Um, and there was always. I got to feeling better after two, three days, and boom, I was off and running. Yeah. So very very predictable yeah. um, and I did that throughout my entire career I could I could stop every once in a while for a couple of months if something really stupid happened yep me too I'd have those periods of sobriety for, for one reason or another yep. usually because I got in trouble or I got oh, yeah. you know, usually that could either be legal trouble or like trouble like with my wife or trouble or that kind of thing where she I would do something just really stupid and have to somehow or another reel that in yeah yeah and that's uh, especially after uh, I overdosed in 07, so I guess we could fast forward to that because that's really the big one. I went to Bonnaroo Music Festival uh, in 07. Uh, Tool was playing, one of my favorite bands of all time, still to this day. And uh, so went to this concert with my now wife. We'd been together for six months uh, and just dating for six months. And uh, I talked her into turning her truck into a tent. And uh, she's an engineer. I talked her into it, but she built it. Let me be clear, because <laughs> that ain't my bag. Uh, did some great woodworking. You would appreciate it. And uh, so anyway, went to Bonnaroo, um, and I had a pocket full of everything. I mean, gallons of booze, dude, just coolers and gallons of booze. And uh, one of my friends told me by the end of the first night, uh, he's like, dude, you no, it was the second night. Anyway, the first night I remember getting real drunk and going out and looking for stuff that I didn't have, which wasn't much, but there was stuff I didn't have that, of course, I wanted. And my now wife told me at the time, she's like, dude, you and I fought like crazy that first night. And she's like, you were so pissed because I just wanted to go to sleep and you just wanted to stay up and party. And uh, so basically I cussed her out and wandered off. And that next day, I found what I was looking for and a whole lot of other stuff, apparently. My buddy said I was like a kid in a candy store. Whatever was in front of me, it was going in my face just fa as fast as I could get it in my hand. And uh, I ended up watching. I remember making it to the Tool concert and seeing uh, <laughs> two, uh, two songs, 46 and 2 and Sober. And those are two of my favorite songs. And then I don't remember anything after that. Uh, until three or four days later, I uh, woke up in the ICU in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm. And uh, I vomited and inhaled it. She's biting my toes. Yeah. She just nibbles really lightly. Rabbit getting you? Yeah. It's always a funny feeling, yeah, huh? Yeah, it's a really funny feeling. <laughs> I have a pet rabbit, for those who don't know it. She's loose on the floor and we're in the living room. She's deciding to uh, taste my feet lightly. And it tickles <laughs> like crazy. But there's also just a little bit of teeth, and you can feel it. And, right. You know. Good. So you woke up awareness in, moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you woke up in the emergency room after you OD'd at the concert. Yeah, OD'd at the concert. So uh, you were out for those days. Yeah. And uh, my buddy said, after it was all done, uh, he said he tried to wake me up. We were sleeping in the back of the truck, and my wife and I, or a girlfriend at the time, and my girlfriend got up, and I didn't get up, and it was getting hot. And so they came to check on me, and I had vomited uh, and then inhaled it. Mm. And uh, how a lot of alcoholics die. Yep. And uh, 
So my buddy ran and got the ambulance, and the ambulance came over and put me in the ambulance and uh, life flighted me out at Bonnery Music Festival. And uh, so I woke up three days later. Uh, That's in Tennessee? Yep. Yeah, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the music concert, I don't remember what town it was in, but not far from just outside of Chattanooga. And uh, so I woke up in ICU. Uh, Well, let me back up. So when I first got to the hospital, I woke up once because I remember waking up. Um, And I was intubated. I had tubes down my throat, which were keeping me alive, but I didn't realize it at the time. And I was in a dark hospital room. And I remember waking up and actually pulling the intubation. And then I remember a a doctor or nurse or somebody coming in and basically kind of tackling me back into the bed because I was getting up and I was leaving. Like I had no clue what was going on. I was pulling this shit and I was out. Um, And they put me back in the hospital bed and then re-intubated me. And I remember during those three days um, in ICU, two or three days, whatever, um, they said I was in a chemically induced coma, but I was awake for a lot of it. And you want to talk about trauma. Now that I had pulled my intubation, I was strapped to the bed. Yeah. So now I'm strapped to the bed, semi-conscious, with intubation down in my uh, face. I had IVs coming out of my wrist, four IVs coming out of my wrist, and four coming out of my femoral uh, artery. And I could feel everything. I'd been high or drunk for years before this. And now I'm in this chemically induced coma, and I was partially awake, and I could feel everything. Mm. And uh, so that is one of the bigger pieces that I had to get through in my step work because I had a real resentment towards the hospital that they couldn't uh, put me under enough that I didn't have to go through all that trauma because that still is some trauma that comes back up from time to time. Uh, nightmares basically mm-hmm. and uh, turns out when my sponsor said oh you know why you couldn't probably stay under and I'm like no he's like because of your tolerance yeah and they had no idea and they had no clue they had no clue I'd been eating painkillers like they were Pez yeah. you know and uh, so anyway they couldn't keep me under so that was some really really intense trauma um, and then I had rehabilitation after that uh, my now wife, girlfriend at the time, uh, stood by my side the entire time. Amazing. She never left, man. And uh, to this day, I still don't know why. And uh, well, we talk about that in one of our other, I'll have a couples come in. I think that's another kind of cool thing to do. And Nick and a friend of mine, Nick, and his wife, Mindy, came in and they had a similar thing of this watching him. And But she saw something, she saw through the, the disease. Mm. And she can't really say that until now in hindsight. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the same way. But she saw through this disease and saw where that, that inside there was something worth sticking with. Hmm. And it's I imagine beautiful. that's probably similar to what you are, have also is that you've come out this other side and, and, and she stuck with something that, that turned out that kind of, it's a little bit like the archetypal story of the prince, the frog prince thing. <laughs> right. It is. Yeah. I knew there was something beyond, so I waited to, to be able to find it. And that's actually something I heard uh, Rev. Ray Church say today, was, you know, always look beyond what's in front of you uh, because there's something beautiful there. And Thank you for that piece. I needed to hear that. And uh, that's, I guess, what she saw. And she stuck by me, but 
Uh, rehab after that was I did it on my own at home. Oh, one thing that so came, this was a rehab like a detox type of rehab, or was mm-hmm. it actually did you have like physical rehab due to the OD that? Yeah, physical. Um, I had physical rehab uh, to do because of my lung damage. So my lung damage, uh, when I would blow into the, um, basically it's a small apparatus you blow into to see your lung strength. Um, I was at about 70%, I believe. Um, So they were like, well, when you go back home, you need to go to, you know, see your doctor and do this and this and this. And I I just wanted to clarify, because when in our world, when we say rehab, most people think of something. Drug detox. (laughs) Thank you. So I had had to rehab my lungs. And Mm -hmm. also, um, I hadn't walked in a week. So my legs started to atrophy. So really? even walking was uh, challenging. Hmm. Uh, balance was off. I was laid in the bed for you know uh, about a week. Yeah. And uh, one thing that, that came up while I was in the hospital, every time I would move my head, there was blood on my pillow. And I could not figure out what happened. Well, I got a big noggin anyway, but it was even bigger. I had a huge hematoma on the back of my head, which is now, if you see me today and you see a scar on the back of my head, that's what it's from. Hmm. Uh, they're not 100% sure where it, where it came from. Uh, my theory is when the when I pulled the intubation, when the doctor slash nurse, when I was getting up and being violent, uh, I believe I came back and hit the bed rail. Hmm. Uh, again, I can't tell anybody that one way or the other, yeah. but I'm, I'm, it's a possibility. Um, but no matter what, now I had this huge hematoma on the back of my head. So that was another part of my rehabilitation from the overdose was that completely scabbed over. So you're talking about a scab about three three inches long and about two inches uh, top to bottom. And for anybody listening to this doesn't know, I have a big old bald head, so it's I can't cover it up with hair. And uh, so now I had this huge scab on the back of my head. Yeah. And uh, that, looking in hindsight, kind of took me back to that childhood trauma. I've had a big, I jokingly say I've had a big, the same size head since I was a kid, but I was, a, I grew up a very, very small, skinny guy. I mean, I'm about 5'11", 6 foot, somewhere in there now, 175, but I was 75 pounds with a big old noggin growing up, made fun of all the time, called mm. watermelon head. And really? All kind of, oh yeah, all kinds of stuff. I was mm. bullied quite a bit. And that's one of the reasons I would act out, because if you would laugh at me, then you wouldn't bully me. Right, um, yeah. That was my defense mechanism. Yep. Yeah, comedian. Uh, what's be, that? You have to have something. You know, you're gonna either be, you're either gonna act out with humor or violence, or right. you know, we're gonna do something. I was too it. small for violence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, except for I'd spear people with my head every once in a while. I did it on a soccer field one time. <laughs> anyway, yeah. senior was making fun of me. I had enough. Um, so after that, I had this big, huge scab on the back of my head. Well. When I got, after I got out of the hospital, I took a week off of work. Uh, the man I've worked for for a long time uh, kept my position open, um, and I went back to work. Now, I, I never went to the doctor again. Um, I never went in and got any type of professional rehabilitation. I did it all completely on my own. Hmm. I never went into any type of detox. I just came off years of drinking and drugging, and it was miserable, physically, mentally, emotionally. It was terrible. So what did I do to cope with it? Started drinking again. And then started hanging out with old guys and then started getting painkillers to subside the pain, so on and so forth. Um, the one beautiful thing I did was to rehab my lungs, I started doing yoga. Yeah, and I've back pra- then, huh? Oh yeah, yeah, I've practiced yoga for since then. Rodney Yee videos. Hmm. And uh, that's been part of my 
a huge part of my recovery, not only from this overdose, but even in to today, um, some sort of physical practice, mind, body, spirit. Yeah. So that'd be someplace in the neighborhood of 12 years ago. Yeah, it was 2007. You said 2007. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's about 12 years. And uh, so the the kicker with the overdose was everybody, again, what I mean by everybody is my family, said, I think you have a drinking problem. I think you have a drinking problem. I think you should go you know, get some help with this because of totaling a car and almost killing my best friend in college. That's one thing I skipped over. Uh, did not get any consequence other than almost killing my best friend and totaling a car that my dad bought for me. It was a Mazda MX-3. He let me borrow $3,000 to go buy a car. And one of my buddy's dads, going back to that again, uh, owned a car dealership. And uh, I thought after I had done a couple keg stands and threw up and passed out and woke back up and started drinking again, that driving on Highway Kentucky 13, which is one of the most dangerous roads in Kentucky, in Somerset, Kentucky, because a buddy of mine needed a ride down there. I thought that was a good idea after a really heavy night of drinking. Hmm. And uh, a mountain jumped out in front of me. <laughs> and uh, and I went head on. Uh, I lost control and went head on. And uh, that's one amends I still haven't made. I still haven't found that guy. Really? Uh, and I, I look forward to that day. And Tommy Eustace, if you're listening, please call me. Uh, I'm going to throw his name out there. What the hell? What the hell? You know, yeah, I mean, why not? God will do whatever he's going to do. <laughs> I wouldn't really be surprised if I don't need to put the email through my contact me page on the website. But that'd be great. I'd love to talk to you, man. Um, but that was one of the heavier consequences uh, of my college drinking. So anyway, I'd gotten DUIs. Um, I had totaled a car, almost killed a best friend, missed many family occasions because of my drinking over the years. So my family was like, look, you've got a problem. You need to go get help. And I just kept saying, no, no, no. Well, when I overdosed, then everybody really had something to say. Yeah, right. You definitely have a problem. You definitely need to go here. You definitely, you have to, you need to, you should. It's crazy people. I don't know where they get off. I have no stuff. idea, man. I just, I, they I need just to mind their own business. I just can't go to music festivals. That was my right, problem, yeah. you know. And keg stands can't ever do those again. You know, that was my problem. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Crazy shit. So I talk about that. My first two DUIs were, were well, one of them was a car, were car things. One of them was a taillight got pulled over, you know. So I did yeah. the pilot. You were talking about pilots earlier. I did a walk down on my car before I would go out drinking, you know, make sure all the turn signals were working, right. all the lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do Because I'm sure, I'm sure not going to stop drinking and driving. Mm. You just have to do it responsibly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will figure, I will manage it. That's our, what do we, we, what do we call that? The drip, the triple D. Who's the designated drunk driver? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ridiculous, man. I hear you on that though. Um, so anyway, now the family had something to really point a finger at, um, and even my girlfriend, she was like, because uh, we drank and party together all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. she was, she just drank though. She didn't do anything else. Um, so what happened from 2007 after that happened uh, to 2014 when I got sober was I hid everything. And you want to talk about being miserable, man. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I mean, no matter what pill, no matter when I had to drink, no matter, and I say had to because of the disease, 
I mean, everything was, I'd, I'd have to plan out family occasions. Like, what am I going to take with me? What excuse am I going to give? What am I going to have to do to be able to, to do this or do that or sneak away or eat this? Or where am I going to hide it so nobody finds it? I mean, it was just, it was exhausting. Yeah. Um, and then I would screw up. I would get caught or I'd miss a family function or whatever. And then, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. It'd be, you know, six weeks, a month, two months, whatever. Uh, and then I'd start up again. The little airline bottles, those always got me. Really? I'd stop. They seem to be popular. Oh, yeah. Stop my thing, but, but a lot of people I know of. I mean, it was just one shot, just right. one ounce. Yeah. What's that going to yeah. do? You Keep know? in a little basket at the counter of the liquor store. Yeah. Well, I would stop and get that because I smoked at the time, and I would stop and get cigarettes. And what's right next to the, li- right. the cigarette yeah. store is the liquor store. And, oh, maybe I'll just stop in and just eh, look around, whatever. I get an airline bottle or two, and the next night it was three. Well, if I'm going to get three, why don't I just get a half pint? If I'm going to have a pint, why don't I just get a pint? And what it ended up being mm-hmm. most of the time, by the by the time that run would happen again, was a fifth of pure grain. Wow. Um, and that would be behind the seat in my truck. And I would wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I would go out, and I would take a pull off it. I'd take a handful of pills, and that's how I started my day. And I did that for a long time uh, until something stupid happened again. Were uh, you getting prescribed the pills from the... No. Or you were getting them? No, otherwise? I got them. Off the street, curious. through the mail. Yep. Uh, there was no nothing prescribed. I got, I got them prescribed a couple times for different reasons, but I talked somebody into giving them to me, but I didn't do that very often. Yep. Most of the time, I either paid for them or had them shipped to me. And uh, so I did that up until I went to an Emotions Anonymous meeting. Again, I was still... Still pretty heavy onto everything, uh, but I knew I was just I was miserable, man. It just sucked. And uh, my dad was running that meeting, so I went and uh, sat with him and, and a couple other guys there in that meeting. And I was like, you know, this is maybe something I can do. This just doesn't have anything to do with drugs or alcohol. Funny enough, <laughs> uh, and, but I could still do what I wanted to do. But I can still hopefully get some help, you know. So I started talking about my problems, and that helped, you know. And then. Through that, uh, I went to Al-Anon a few times. And, again, thought it was everybody else's problem. Well, my, my dad's in the program. I think I've already covered that. So you and was it your dad was the catalyst for going to Al-Anon? Yeah. Is that the yeah. yeah, he went to the men's meeting Tuesday nights. Yeah. Uh, there's sometimes 100 guys in that meeting. Yeah. And uh, it's a solid meeting. I haven't been there in a long time. But uh, I started going there uh, with him. And uh, it was cool, man. I didn't grow up with my pops, so I had something to do with my pops. Yeah. And uh, so that was nice. We kidnapped him a couple years before that from North Carolina. That was kind of fun. <laughs> he was going through a really tough time with his then wife, and my sister and I literally hopped on a plane and went and got him, got in his two vehicles, and drove him back to Kentucky. And he's been here ever oh, since. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, so I went to Allen on with my pops, and. Uh, Again, was still talking about what I had going on in my life, and was starting to feel a little bit better. And I uh, ended up sitting down with uh, a temporary sponsor in Al-Anon, and uh, and saying, you know what, I I don't think I want to drink and drunk anymore. You know, I've overdosed. And I started telling him my story a little bit, and he was also uh, in AA, and he said, uh, he said, well, I, I'll be your temporary sponsor. And I said, well, I don't want to do that AA thing. I just want to do Al-Anon. He's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> Whatever, dude. Okay. But I didn't want to drink or drug. So 
cunning, baffling, and powerful, right? And uh, so two months went by, um, and I hadn't done anything. And then there was a bottle of pills sitting on a table at a family function, and dude, without missing a beat, just thunk, popped a couple and went up right about my day. And then I was like, the next day I'm sitting there, I'm like, what in the hell? Well, then I started really beating myself up, and I got into a really, really dark place because, look, I'm trying to do something different. I'm going to these meetings, but I still can't stay sober, and now I'm going to overdose again, and just the the crazy train was just in full effect. Um, And and I went... (laughs) I sat with a forty-five caliber in my lap, and uh, I was done, man. I just I couldn't do it. I I could not figure out how the fuck to beat this thing. Yeah. And uh, I was 35 years old, and Dr. Carl Jung, which is in the big book, uh, 35 years old. We have uh, the way he states it: we have rocks in a backpack, and at 35 we take start taking those rocks out. We either look at them or we start projecting them on people. And my backpack was just too heavy. I couldn't carry it anymore, and uh, I was done carrying it. And I didn't know what else to do. So, as I sat there with a, a gun in my lap, my little border collie came up um, and started licking me in the face. And I had a moment of clarity. And I thought, what the hell am I doing, man? Uh, I don't want to leave this little dog here. I don't want to leave my wife. And then I started kind of coming back from that really, really nasty, gnarly place. And I, I called my pops. And I said, Dad, I, I'm really really bad I said I really need some help and he said I can't help you anymore but I know who can and he said there's a meeting at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning at the ice house he's like I want you to go and I can't talk to you anymore until you go and he hung up the phone because hmm. he knew that he couldn't do anymore I could almost hear that in your dad's voice Yeah, I could almost hear when you said that I could almost hear that yep and uh, and to this day, he says it's still one of the toughest things he's ever done in his entire life. Uh, but it was the right thing. And uh, I walked into the ice house the next day, and I've never been so afraid in my entire life, man. <laughs> I was shaking, and uh, I remember coffee hitting my hand, but I was just so numb. It, it wasn't even hot. And uh, I remember this uh, tall black guy sitting across from me. sat down, and he said, Hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> it's like, my first inclination was like, how the fuck do you think I'm doing, man? Look at me. I'm a train wreck. But then it hit me. He actually asked me how I'm doing. Yeah. He didn't assume anything. He didn't judge anything. He didn't try to put any garbage on me. He just said, legitimately asked, how am I doing? And I told him how miserable I was. And he said, keep coming back, man. We're here for you. And when I heard that, I thought, I'm in the worst place, one of the worst places in my life. And this guy says, we're here for you. We're here to help you. You tell us what you need, and we'll do the best we can. And right then, I was like, I found it. I was like, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. It was just somebody to not judge me, to know that I was in pain, and not say, I'm here to help you. He said, I'm here for you whatever you need that was a big one because if you say you're here to help me fuck you Hmm. i don't need your help my instant defiance right away but just what he said resonated with me and it's and i sat with it and then i started going to meetings regularly 
and I started here in 90 and 90, which I have to be honest, I never did, but I went to meetings every week, I still do. Um, and things got really different, really different. And uh, I started meeting people in the rooms. And uh, that temporary sponsor, I ended up doing some uh, some step work with him. And uh, don't chew on my flip flop, dude. She will. Yeah, you will. Little wild rabbit. Whew, I needed that break. Thanks, rabbit. <laughs> and. Uh, I ended up doing some step work with him, and uh, I ended up writing kind of a partial four-step, kind of getting that rolling, um, and it it just it wasn't working. Um, I just I, nothing nothing felt right, and I in hindsight now I just it was me. I wasn't ready. I ran, and I just said, man, I don't I don't think you're the right person. Blah 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 blah. And uh, so after that. I'm at uh, a dog function and I'm talking to one of my customers and I'd known him for about six months to a year and he had just been robbed at gunpoint um, and he ran a, uh, a radio shack and he just got robbed at gunpoint and I knew just about enough of the four step that you know when I'm angry at somebody then there's that that process you know i didn't know a whole lot but i, I knew enough yeah. you know it's starting to sink in right and so i started talking to him about you know well who was it you know what happened what did it affect and he looks at me and he goes oh you're a friend of bill's and at the time i didn't even know what that meant i was still so fresh in AA. i was like friend of bill's what are you talking about he's like yeah. you're in the program yeah, and he's like, Bill W., have you read? I was like, oh, yeah, the book. Oh, yeah, duh. And I just never heard that phrase before, yeah. you know? Yeah, I remember the first time somebody said something to me about it, too. I was I was really, I, I did like I always do. I threw my mask on and pretended like they knew, uh, like I knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Like I knew Bill. Like right. There was some dude named Bill that I knew. And <laughs> Bill's a great guy. Great guy. Yeah. I and, see him uh, on Tuesday nights. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so anyway... Uh, once I figured out that he's in the program, I was like, how long have you been in the program? He's like, 10 years. And I'm looking at him, and at the time, he's 31 years old, and I'm like, you got sober when you were 21? He's like, yeah, I had cirrhosis of the liver at 21. Mm. I was like, holy shit. It's like, you're way worse than me. <laughs> no. and, uh, but I, I clicked with him, and it, and it made sense, and I really enjoyed being around him and talking to him, so... He and I ended up uh, going to a couple meetings together. And then uh, I sat down with him one day and I said, hey, man, what do you think about being my sponsor? You know what? I'm leaving one guy out. I did have another sponsor in between there. Um, and we sat down and started reading the book together. And again, I, I still don't think I was ready. It wasn't the right fit, whatever. But then I moved on from him and went to this guy. And uh, so he and I sat down and, and uh, did third step prayer together, or read, started reading through the book, did third step prayer together. And uh, he said, I want you to do your fourth step. And so he, he showed me the way that he was taught uh, to do the fourth step out of the book. And uh, I put it off and put it off and put it off, and then I got miserable. And I started going, I'm miserable and I'm miserable. And he's like, You've written, have you written anything down? No, click. Yeah. no click no click no click finally all right i'll sit down so i sat down on a saturday i locked myself in my upstairs yoga uh room and for five hours i wrote uh and i wrote and i wrote and i wrote um and i got it 
I got all my resentments out in that session. And then I had another session the next week, uh, the sex inventory and the fears. And uh, then he and I started getting together and uh, going through the fifth. And I started to to find my part. Uh, you know, especially with, man, I was angry at everybody. I mean, just fucking furious. And uh, once I started to see my part, and he started to reframe uh, Dr. Carl Jung, going back to that, what was going on and what was happening, then it really, uh, I started to get some relief. And one other thing that, that he has practiced in that I'm now part of is called the Mankind Project. And the Mankind Project is doc based on Dr. Carl Jung's work. And if you're in the program, you're not familiar, page 26 to 27, uh, Dr. Carl Jung and Bill W. had a conversation, letters, and talks about emotional displacement and emotional rearrangement and then also reframing. Yep. Um, and in the Mankind Project, it's based on his work. And not to get too far off of recovery, but it's a great compliment to my recovery. And because my sponsor at the time was also versed in that, he put that aspect um in into the fourth and fifth so for me it was a deeper dive um yeah. into truly what was driving the bus um and then what that did was open up the the character defects uh which of course i thought i was perfect and then no i wasn't what 194 i think is what's posted online and i had 180 something yeah. you know it's like anyway um but then i started to get some relief but one thing i cannot leave out of my story is I wrote down some, in my four-step, uh, some very traumatic things that happened as a child and some people that I was really angry at, but I didn't, I didn't flesh it out uh, completely on my paper. Um, and, then, and some people were hurt. Well, I took my four-step to work with me, which I do not recommend in my backpack, and I left it out. And then now I thought people at work had read it. And so I'm early in recovery. I'm dead set in the middle of my fifth step or fourth step and fifth step. And now I think people have read my fourth step. Yeah. And my peculiar mental twist and my one of my character defects, my paranoia, my shadow piece just went wild. And I was not sleeping. I was not eating. I was calling people at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. Thank you, anybody that's listening that answered the phone at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. That's why to this day when I meet a newcomer, I'm like, dude, call me at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I owe a lot of people phone calls answered at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. So please call me so I can pay that forward. Um, But, man, one of the biggest things that I want to, to share with anybody in the program is keep that four step close. Yeah. And make sure it is not protect it. Yeah. It is not That's left what I out. I was taught to a lot of I just actually have gave that guy I gave a guy those exact instructions not yep. too long ago. I've uh, have heard a story of a guy punching holes through it and put padlock on it. Now it doesn't keep anybody out of it, but if it's tore open, right, you will know it. Right. There you go. <laughs> I kinda like that. And uh so probably none of it was true. Nobody ever read it, but I, I went on a rant. Just wow. crazy shit, man. Yeah. Just miserable. Uh, but because of the program and because 
I was praying every day and because I was going to meetings and because of the phone calls, because I had a pocket full of numbers and people that I knew that worked night shift that I could call yeah. and people that I knew were up at six o'clock in the morning and two in the afternoon were taking a break. Like I learned people's schedules by who would answer. Yeah. And so at any time of the day, literally 24 hours a day, I knew somebody in my phone I could call and I could talk to them yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah, and that's you know that's really one of the biggest pieces of the program. I mean, there's a lot of big pieces, but knowing that somebody is there just to listen to my crazy ass just go, and no matter what came out of my face, they just listened. Yep. I'm like, this is crazy. Like this isn't right. Like you're just listening. And I realized, you know, after that stint, I'm gonna be okay because. This is one of the, again, in my sobriety, one of the worst moments that I had to go through. And people were there for me. Right. Day after day after yeah. day after day. And they kept answering the phone. And I'm like, when are you going to stop answering the phone? They're like, I'm not. Because somebody did this for me. And I'm right. like, "Yeah, this is normal? And they're like, yeah, it's okay. And I'm like, you don't understand how crazy I am. You know, but anyway. Yeah. Guys that talk call and they're like, man, I really hate to bother you. Like, right. You are not bothering no. me. You are helping me, man. You can, yeah. set, them on, heck, you can set them on the table. Part of it. All so right. Set them on that hutch or whatever. Man, he did some damage quick. Yeah, he will, he, she, will, she will chew some stuff up quickly, dude. Yeah, she will. Quinoa maze. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, the worst part of my surprise <laughs> because I thought, that people knew my deepest, darkest secrets, you know, and I was not ready for anybody to hear that other than the man that I read it to. Yeah. And one thing my sponsor commended me for is he goes, you actually were willing to talk about it, though. He's like, and a lot of people that he has experienced that go back out weren't even willing to talk about those deep, dark things. Yeah. And I said, dude, I wanted it all out. I wanted everything gone. And uh, so I ended up, finishing the fifth um and then we kept reading and went into uh to six and seven started looking at those character defects and six and seven in the in the big book is such a short you know two chapters Blip. yeah the uh the drop the rock i have i've read just enough of it to get a feel of it but that's something i that's still in my recovery now i'd like to get dive a little bit deeper into i had a I had a guy with 10 years of sobriety say he really didn't dive into six and seven until nine years of sobriety. Hmm. And I was like, wow. He's like, yeah, there's more to be revealed, to say the least. Yeah. And uh, so then I got into uh, eight and nine, and I didn't, I didn't want to do it. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to do nine. I didn't want to make amends. And uh, my sponsor just told me, he said, you don't have to. You just have to be willing. Just write the list. And uh, I said, okay, let me back up to after I did my fourth. And some, some people in recovery don't agree with this. Some do, whatever. That's going to be no matter what. My fourth step, after I read it to my sponsor, we went out to his grill and we burned the damn thing. Hmm. And we set it on fire. And it is one of the most relieving moments of my entire life. Interesting. Because all that fear and sex conduct and resentment and anger – what happened was, and what still happens to this day, when those people still come up from time to time, um, is I look back and I'm like, no, I read them to another alcoholic, I turned them over to God, and I burned those damn things. They are not part of me anymore. They are gone. And so that is something that was a big relief for me. Now, 
later on in recovery, what I've been taught is that's where the eighth and ninth comes from. My sponsor, though, said if those people you harmed in your fourth, they will come up in your eighth. You don't need the paper. And I said, okay, let's burn it. The other reason he said burn it is because you've already had people possibly read it once. He's like, I want this thing gone. <laughs> I was like, fair enough, dude. Uh, I'm good with that. And uh, so anyway, uh, I want to tell a story about eight and nine. So three days into recovery, I walked into Simply AA downstairs at the uh, Serenity House. And I sit down at this table. I'm brand new sober, and I'm just still a wreck. I look across the table, and I see this dude, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and we're both like, we know you. I know you. I know you. And the dude sitting next to him goes, you guys don't know each other's names, do you? We were like, nope. Turns out, once we put it together, we lived in the same house for four months when we were out in the madness. Oh, yeah. And I was dating his best friend, which we worked together at the time. So once the clouds kind of lifted, we were sitting there looking at each other going, whoa, that tells you how hard we were ripping and running. Living in the same Wells apartment for four freaking months, run into this guy in sobriety, and I don't even know his freaking name, you know? But it was a cool moment because I was like, well, damn, you were way more messed up than I was. (laughs) Like, if you can make it, I definitely can make it. Yeah, right. And... that's a, that is a real enlightening spot that a lot of people find. They see friends, old friends in recovery. You right. think, golly, that person would never make this. If they could do it, then maybe I can. Yeah. And, uh, well, how that leads to eight and nine is I we walk outside after the meeting, and he comes right out to me, and he's like, hey, Dave, i got to make an amends to you. Now, at the time, I'm fresh into the program. I don't know what the heck an amends yeah. is or anything. He said, I want to make an amends to you. Of course, me being, oh, Okay. He said, well, back in the day, he's like, you pissed me off. And I remember punching the right f- back fender of your Chevy Lumina, and I dented it. I need to know what I can do to make that right. And I looked at him, and I laughed. And I was like, can I give you a hug? And he's like, yeah. And I hugged him. And he's like, why are you hugging me? He's like, I was like, man, I thought I hit somebody. <laughs> I was like, I'm so happy it was just you that punched that Lumina. I was like, that drove me crazy forever. But after he made that amends... I felt so much better. And he's the one that made the amends. Yeah. And I was kind of like, whoa, there is something to this. And that's, again, one of those God hooks that kept me coming back because I wanted that feeling. Yeah. And so that's one of the other reasons why I finally did my eight, why I finally did my nine. Um, still doing that nine, like Tommy that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Come on, Tommy, find me. Uh yeah, it's a it's an odd thing when I hear and I and I trigger on a little bit when I hear somebody say they've done all their amends. Right. I'm not sure that's possible in my world, no. but but I am willing and I am got my eyes open and my ears open and heart open for the opportunities. And like I said, there is there's some real it, spontaneous amends are pretty damn juicy. Right. Uh, oh yeah. And God puts a couple people together by accident like that. Yep. That gets to be, and then you know, like you said, that other thing too. You know, and that's not the, really the point of it uh, at all, but. That's a collateral benefit. I like to use that term. It's a collateral damage that we <laughs> collateral did. benefit. Collateral benefit is sometimes it's like you do this amend and it actually allows you to be taken off the hook of something that you thought was by in your history, like you thought you'd hit somebody. Right. You know. So now I'm for, you got free mm-hmm. and from this guy's amends, and the point for him supposedly is for him to get free. Right. right. 
And there's that collateral benefit that, that happens. I like that. And a double freedom. <laughs> so, but from there, um, the the amends are still going. Oh, I'll tell you a story. I was down at a recovery house downtown. Uh, doesn't matter where it was. Anyway, and I was I was doing my lead. And I was telling my story. And all of a sudden, I realized, I remembered, I blamed a guy for stealing pills. And it was actually me. And I, that had never came up before. And I literally stopped halfway through my lead. I was like, do you have a paper and a pen? <laughs> and so I had to write that down. got in contact with a guy after yeah. that. and made that amends. But, yeah, they're just, they just come up, you know. That, that curtain gets kind of shifted a little bit, as you said earlier. Yeah, right. Yep. That deal where you're, you know, I've. I've told myself a lie enough times I now believe it. And one day I wake up and, I, and I've told this story before too, where I had some lie. I don't even know what it is now. You know, it's been washed. Yeah, it's gone. But I had this lie I was carrying around and telling people whenever we were around in the shooting the shit sessions. You know, that mm. I would say, "Well, you know, here, let me tell you about this." Right. And I remember one day just landing on me and going, "Hold on," but you know, I was getting ready to tell this story. Yeah. And I realized that's mm-hmm. a bullshit story. Yeah. That's all. I made that up. Uh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not telling that story anymore. Yep. I did that on the podium one time. I started getting into a story, and all of a sudden I was like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Fancy to real. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty wild. And uh, I'll tell you a, a fun recovery story you've probably heard, because you've, you've heard my lead before. I don't right? know that I have. I was sitting here a minute ago going, I don't know that I've heard your, you, you, my full you story. Your, your full story. So I'll tell you my favorite story, and one of my favorite stories in recovery. Uh, I went on a motorcycle trip just my, by myself. I have a 1982 Honda Goldwing. So I loaded that sucker down, and I drove all back roads uh, from here uh, in a little area all the way to Cherokee, uh, North Carolina, which is right around uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Well, Asheville's a little bit north. Anyway, all back roads, didn't touch the highway. It was 12 hours uh, on the back of the bike in the sun. You know, I had a freaking blast all through the woods and everything else so i get down to cherokee i get something to eat i go to bed the next morning get up drink way entirely too much coffee you know and i'm back on the road because i'm going to go to Asheville. i'm going to go to a yoga class and then i'm heading directly east to the outer banks i had a thousand miles planned um in two days and so i'm driving north uh going up to Asheville, north carolina and it's four-lane highway and all of a sudden, I see something just going ping, 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 like down the highway. And I'm like, what in the hell is that? And so, like on a movie, like slow motion, all of a sudden, I see this thing go, direct TV. And I'm like, why is there, a, you know, I just had this slow motion moment of why is there a direct TV satellite dish bouncing down the freaking highway? And so, as it's bouncing back and forth, now I'm trying to time it to where I'm going to swerve around it. And so, as I swerve, the thing breaks in two pieces. One of the pieces comes in and hits the side of my tire. Luckily, on an 800-pound bike, the Goldwing is one of the most balanced bikes on the road. So it hits me, and I wobble, but then I save it. And my butt is puckered tighter than it's ever oh, been man. in my entire life, as you can imagine. So I save it. So my heart rate starts to come back down, and I'm like, oh, my God, that was crazy. But I'm all right. I'm still upright. And then there's a truck with a trailer right behind it. Just The trailer's just full of garbage, just all kinds of stuff. And, of course, me being me, I'm like, I know it was that guy, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm about to sit there and flip him the bird and cuss him out, not knowing if it was his freaking satellite dish or not, you know, just in the heat of the moment. And then I'm like, no, I just started praying some more. I didn't say that a minute ago, but I was praying the entire time, like, God, thank you for saving me, help, thank you, blah, blah, blah. 
And so I'm like, no, I'm just going to continue to pray. I'm just going to continue to go on my trip. Well, about a quarter mile down the road, next thing you know, dunk, 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 dunk. I'm like, damn it, I got a flat tire. So the front tire starts going flat. Now, this is an 800-pound bike. When that tire goes flat, I ain't moving. So I get off the side of the road. It's an off-ramp, but it's only one little off-ramp. And then my tire goes completely flat. So now I'm on the side of the off-ramp on a very, very small sliver. And cars are just whipping past me. Just I'm like, dude, I'm going to get hit. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, what can I do? Like, I have a plug. I have uh, the uh, fix-a-flat. Yeah. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to call the police. Holy shit. I can call the police for a good reason. Like, I need help. I was like... There's no drugs in my car, in my bike. I'm not drunk. Like, this is really strange. And so I called 911. I was like, I need some help. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to plug the tire. And next thing you know, this cop car pulls up. And he gets out, and I hear, oh, roar, 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 roar. They sent the canine unit. Uh, I was like, this is awesome. So now I'm sitting here talking dogs with the police officer. Well, I get my fixer flat out. And I realize in my haste, when I was leaving for my trip, I grabbed the wrong fixer flat. On a bike, you have to have the one with the hose, not with the straight nozzle. I grabbed the one with the straight nozzle. So now I'm looking at this police officer going, do you know where a auto zone is around here by chance? He's like, yeah, it's about a mile and a half from here. And I was like, all right, um, can you give me a ride? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, get in. So now I'm in a cop car riding with no handcuffs on. Yeah, right, I was like, yeah. ooh, this is new. It was like the gifts of sobriety, yeah. you know, and this beautiful Belgian Malinois right behind me, you know, just sitting there looking at me like, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I'm talking with him, talking with the officer. Anyway, we get the fix a flat. We go back. I plug the tire. I put the fix a flat in and you hear that sound. Nobody ever wants to hear. And I'm like, damn it. There's two holes in the tire, but it's leaking slow enough with the fix a flats. Got it slowed down just enough. I'm like, all right, I got to get across town because I had Googled where my tire was. It's an old bike, so it's hard to find. But there's a motorcycle shop across town. It's like three miles or something like that. And so I asked the officer, I was like, can you do me one more favor? I was like, I know my favors are getting thin, man, but please one more. And he's like, what do you want? What do you need? And I said, will you just follow me over there? Because if this, if, this, if this bike dies completely, if this tire goes completely flat, I was like, will you just give me a ride? I'll get the tire and I'll bring it back and I'll, I'll change it. He's like, I'll do one better. And I was like, what are you talking about one better? He goes, I'll be in front of you. I had a police escort through Asheville, North Carolina. Lights on and everything, Very man. Cool. Sitting there on my bike. He got me there safe and sound. Got my tire fixed. I'm back on the road within, you know, an hour, hour and a half when yeah, I got some breakfast cool. or whatever. Yeah, man. But it was, it was that blessing moment of, man, old Dave, I'd have been screwed. Yeah. I couldn't have called for help. Nobody would have wanted to help me. I'd have probably been in such a rage because I'd have been on something anyway. I'd have probably kicked the bike right, over. Yeah, yeah. I'd have probably yeah, cussed that guy. That guy would have hit me with the truck. Pissed at your circumstances. Right, because it's all against me. You know, I can't do anything right. I can't even go on a motorcycle ride. Like that old stinking thinking way. Yeah. And uh, it was just totally different. And that's why that's one of the crowning moments that of my cool. sobriety. It just, I love those stories. It just hit me. Yeah. You know? You'd actually told it to me before. Yeah. Uh, one night someplace. Uh, oh, okay. After a meeting or something. But I was so, I, you know, they haven't heard it. Right. Uh, well, thanks for listening. Yeah, again. man. I like it. And, uh, uh, you told it a lot quicker to me that, that that night you know like the, in the interest of not burning too much of my time <laughs> at this time i feel like i heard the actual story all right well good
Yeah. Well, I'm glad thank, I got together. Thank you got, for that. Not That's just the cliff cool, notes, man. but the yeah, whole right. yeah. whole expansion. That is cool, you know. And we pile those things up, you know, and they're yep. like, you know, probably if you sit down and you look at them, and we we do this little podcast thing, and then it ends up being that we we talk pretty long, and people will go, "Really that long?" And you go, "Man, it didn't feel like that long." But these no. little stories are cool, and they are. They're they're they're. I have that thing. I'll beat this drum to death. I yeah. have a miracle list. It is a mm-hmm. list of these kind of things like you experienced there. Mm. To me, that is a miracle. That is a yeah. universe working to my good. And long as I am doing the right things, like you said, we said a minute ago, as we get these blessings poured into our lives, we continue to take the right steps like the what you did during that episode. Of not, right. Uh, certainly what you didn't do was do the wrong things. <laughs> right. And, uh, and and then you get pay, you get the universe reward you for that somehow yeah. or another. And I'm not exactly sure, you know, you know, it sounds like a little bit of new age hanky panky kind of weird stuff, but but yeah, I whatever, watch it man. happen to guys and gals all the time. I, and then and I hear these stories and they're just so that's the proof in the pudding of what happens to a person from where you were, that O D days in the oh in the in the intensive care unit mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff to where you go, that guy can never be anything. You know, yeah. he is lost in that, and then to watch as we come through this human washing machine called the Twelve Steps, yep. and out the other side, and be able to have these other things happen, these miracles, these 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 adventures, yeah, we get to to be a part of. And what's coming up for me there is uh, one of the most important statements I've learned in in the program is just do the next right thing. Yeah, and that's something I tell myself every single day. And uh, like you said, doing the next right thing, you get blessed. Yeah. Over and over and over. Yeah. And you know, sometimes I'm not sure what the right, the next right thing is, but I almost know what the wrong thing is too. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I can go, don't do that. <laughs> it's usually the first thought. Okay, so I won't do that. Right. <laughs> and I won't do this. Right. And that's kind of that pause button, right? That pause when agitator doubtful thing. That's when I get to take a minute and go, hold on, what is the right thing to do here? Hold on, let's take a minute. Let's take a day. Let's take a week. Right. We don't have to. Make Rush a decision anything. on that today. And thank God I got my sponsor and other people in the program that when I when I am befuddled like that, just go, I don't know what to yeah. do here. Yeah. I get to call somebody and they'll go, hey, here's what I've done in my experience. And yeah, that's, you know, uh, my sponsor, like, a, there's this blessing where he hardly ever gives me my answer, but by through talking to him, I will arrive at my answer. Yeah. So many times that'll happen. Or be talking through somebody, you know, won't necessarily be my sponsor. It'll be a support person, somebody in these circles I can talk yep. to. And, and they rarely ever give me my answers. But mm-hmm. we beat it around, and, and, I, and I arrive at one more times than not. Yep. Well, that's my sponsees. I've had a couple of them. I've been very blessed and honored. But something I'll hear them say, well, just tell me what to do. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't do that. You to do, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you what I did and didn't do, and what yeah. worked and what didn't work with my experience. And yeah. I'll throw his name on here. I don't think he'll matter. And I'll just say, but his first name is so unique that it's uh, hard not to. But Vlad is taking this trip, yeah. this hiking trip, and he called me from on top of the mountain. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it was iced in, and he was in a dangerous position. Oh wow. Know whether to carry forward or not to carry forward. You know, and it was, you know, you know him well enough to know yeah. how much he's been looking forward to this trip. Yeah. And you know, and you know, and he's like, "What do you, what do I do?" <laughs> That's exactly when you said, it. "I was like, man, I'm sitting here in New Albany, in my air conditioned house, man. I don't know what to do. Let's talk about it for a little bit. Let's look All at right. where our options are. You know, let's." And uh, we do you have to when what is the time frame where you have to make a decision? Right. You know, let's and so somebody's selling on that down because he's. He's in the thick of it, right? Yeah, that's life or death. It's spinning. Yeah. You know, right. somebody without a real dog in the hunt that way can help somebody talk through it and, yeah. and, and do it. And he did decide to, to divert and go pick it up another day rather than risk uh, potential <laughs> potential death. death. 
Yeah. Yeah. Good for him, man. Well, yeah. I'm glad you heard yeah. from him. I but those from those are miracles about the recovery thing of why we get to do this thing together, you know. And I was just hung up the phone and I actually cried, you know. Yeah. I tear not because of anything more than the fact that I get to do this today yeah. where a guy took a minute when he's sitting up on a mountain not knowing what to do on the other side of this continent. Mm-hmm. He knew what to do. Yeah. He said, I'll go call my sponsor. Yeah. It's beautiful, man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, it's just I'm tearing up now talking about it. Yeah. I all got uh, this these miracles we get to do. It's a great moment. So, so you know we have these miracles. So you know uh, you this is hour thirty eight. Are you serious? Yep. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> all right. So do you have any other miracles you'd want to talk about? Um, one thing that I I want to express is just my experience on living day to day, and that's uh, the tenth step that I think uh, you know simply said it's continue to take personal inventory, but. It's much deeper than that uh, for me as I've been taught. And so to simplify it in my language, uh, when something gets, when I pause, when I'm agitated or fearful, for example, like you were just talking about, is jot it down first off. Um, Once I jot it down, then it's out of me, it's on paper. Uh, Praying about it. Talking with my sponsor or somebody in my support group about it. Uh, Turning it over to God. And then trying to help another alcoholic. And... That process for me is uh, help another alcoholic or somebody else. That process for me is helps helps me get that relief that I need, so that way I can walk through every single day uh, a little bit better. Yeah, and and not get hung up on those little things and not want to hide, run and hide. Whether it's still not drugs, and, it's not drugs and alcohol, thank God. But I can hide in other things, and I get to live and experience life. You know, and that to me is especially right now where I am in my life, just in general, I've had some huge transitions in the last six months even. And I feel so odd and different and new like every single day. And when I first came in the program, about three days in, I called an old timer I met in the meeting. And uh, I said, man, I feel really weird. And he said, welcome to reality. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh shit. And after I did the step work, I called the same man, and I said, man, I, I feel really weird. I feel really odd. And he said, welcome to serenity. Hmm. And that, for me, is something that I've hung on to uh, every single day. And not every single moment of every single day is, you know, perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than it used to be. Yeah. And when I do get those real serene moments that I just saw, I believe you go through a second ago, and as I, as I told my story tonight, that finding out where I was and where I could go back to, but I have a choice and I have a way of life that, that dictates that I can do things differently. That is, no story will top that. Uh, and knowing that I have a plan, I've got a power greater than myself that can lead me to, to people like you and to other people that are willing to, to listen and to, to be a part of my life. Yeah. Um, and I just don't have to be alone, man. Yeah, and that's absolutely. That's yeah. the number one blessing for me. So. Yeah, the tokens I'm handing out in the uh, as a welcome token at the uh, the little TSSR, the twelve step spiritual recovery thing, where we're doing the twelve steps, opening that up for anybody who might want these tools, not just the isms. Yeah. Um, we will give one away that says "Never Alone Again," hmm. and on the back of it, it says it has a little thing about walking this path. And the one thing for sure is is that we have these people side by side that walk this with us. Yeah, and that is what twelve step recovery is giving me. We don't want, I always kind of like trying to figure out where all the shelves are in this because there are so many awesome things that I get to do the 10th step and be able to operate like that. I yeah. got these community people around me. I, you know, all this never make another decision alone. 
uh, all these miracles that come from from investing in this. So real quick, I know we're getting to the end of here. One thing sure. I really want to talk about: uh, Are you still involved with that dog helping? What's the helping heroes? Uh, not anymore. Not anymore. Uh, I stepped away about a year ago. Okay. Um, um, basically, they're they're still in full swing, still helping people. Uh, what I'm part of now is it's called Four Paws for Service. Uh, it is a branch of the Humane Society of Oldham County. So we just placed uh, a service dog with a young boy that has AFM. It's called acute flaccid myelitis. It is affecting children. It paralyzes them, uh, and their recovery is long and hard. Uh, now this young boy has half of his body back uh, that he can use the right side of his body, and we just placed wow. a service dog with him. It's a rescued service dog. Very cool. Um, and it's helping him with mobility and stability. Yeah, uh, we. With Four Paws for Service, we're also reaching out to veterans that may be in need or anybody that has a disability that they, they feel a, a service dog could help them. So that's humanesociety.org uh, slash Four Paws for Service. And if anybody out there needs uh, is in need of a service dog, uh, especially a rescued service dog, that is my specialty. Uh, there's also therapy dog work. Uh, we place dogs with in nursing homes. We place dogs in... Uh, Norton Children's Healthcare. Mm, uh, so basically, when a kiddo goes in to have stitches, for example, they got a dog at their side. It's pretty yeah, sweet. Yeah, really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, God bless her. One of my friends right now is in uh, chemotherapy. And oh, wow. we trained her little schnauzer to be her therapy dog. And I've helped people with dogs. Uh, one of my friends just quit smoking. And so we taught her a dog, a command called Love. And when, when my friend starts to get stressed, she starts to rub her legs. And now her dog will cue on that even without her saying anything. When she sees her start to rub her legs, her dog will come up and lay her head in her lap. So now she starts petting her dog, which helps subside that anxiety and want and craving. Yeah, very cool. And so I think anybody with anybody can benefit from a dog. It may not be a full-service dog, but they can still be of service to anybody in, in life's issues, especially going through a lot of grief. I've been dealing with a lot of grief in the last year, and my dogs have really, really helped me out with that. So. Yeah. That is a really just cool thing. I know I saw the thing about the service dogs, the, the helping the, these service members coming back and the PTSD, and I yep. saw that it really touched me, you know, and I, and I knew that that's something you'll, it's a way you get to like do some service. It's like very unique, you know, and mm -hmm. that's, you know, I, I say I get to participate in my recovery in some unique ways. One of them is doing this podcast, you know, yeah. and, and one other one is that I get to host that retreat out there in the country and do that, you know, and so mm -hmm. you get to participate in your recovery by helping these other people, which is the fundamental answer to every one of the problems a big book says, you know, that's like that dot at the end of the sen sentence every time something's going on do this do this do this and then help somebody <laughs> right and so we have this it inherently built ourselves. into your thing where this is like a part of your lifestyle as well is that the period of the end of your sentence is to help somebody and that's yep. just part of your your doing today you know and uh, that's my life mission is transforming lives with the power of the dog yeah. you will see it all across anything that i do and because i've seen it happen a ridiculous amount of times not only in my own life my little border collie helping me get into this my path to recovery but i've watched people in, in very very dark places that have told me if i didn't have this dog right now i wouldn't be on this planet yeah. i've had a dog all my life and it was an important thing for me to have that and, and very touch, touched me and i can remember times in my life that i that, that that's who i leaned on you know when yeah. i didn't have what i have today 
uh, my dog was there for me, you know, yeah. whenever I was hitting the bottom and that kind of thing. It's kind of funny in another way, you know, dogs have come into my life in a real big time way here lately of uh, Robin having the doggy daycare person right. going over there and being yeah, in man. proximity. Now I got bit by some dogs when I was younger yeah. and older. I had a dog that bit me a couple of times. I put over 100 stitches in my face over two bites. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so there's some fear in there. Yeah, and some stuff. So. And a lot of dogs, I think, can kind of sense that. Uh, and I wonder if, like, part of this, what's going on, like, with me being over at Robin's <laughs> dog place. To help you some, deal with that trauma. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I really do think there's a little of that uh, going on, a higher power kind of thing, saying, okay. You're in the dog recovery program. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's really cool to uh, to see that those uh, other something. And then also the owners, you know, to watch. And they're, they care about their dogs enough that they bring them there in the morning while they go to work or do their daily thing so that their dogs are not sitting at home alone. Yeah. They're bringing them in to play with these other dogs because it's a free play facility. Right. And and the, they just look happy. And the yeah. owners look happy, too. Right. You know? Uh, and, it's just and a party place, man. It didn't compute to me when I first heard it. I was going, wait a minute. Really? Yeah. People really do that. And then uh-huh. I'm thinking, you know. Like, I'm thinking, like, some kind of, like, uh, almost had different, you know, almost like when you think about the gutter drunks, when you think about come day, you're going to see all these people that are you know, right. living under the bridge. Looking homeless and yeah, everything else. Thing, and you go in there and you find out, no, they look all just like me. Right. Uh, and the same thing in there. You know, you think these dog owners got to be something weird. No. <laughs> no. Normal old people. Yeah, just with some so fun-loving cool. dogs. And then, so then that, uh, so then you all come together, you know, and we get to do this community thing where these little ties and these little like synapses is almost you know yeah. except for they're out here in the real world yeah come together for whatever reason where we make these connections in the human journey and uh yeah. it's really dreams. neat it's beautiful man i love it yeah i'm glad you're getting uh some dog love it's important yeah. <laughs> so man uh you feel like you're complete today or yeah, yeah i feel good brother thank yeah, you very man. much for this opportunity hey, man i enjoyed it i was, uh i got i just I got so many friends in recovery, and I want every one of their stories on this, man. Yeah. I just have a good time doing it. I get to hear it. That's a little bit selfish, too. I get to have you all to myself and sit and listen <laughs> to your story. And then if I don't understand something, I get to ask a question. Right. And it's like at the podium sometimes. I'll, hey, now hold on a minute. Right. Uh, go back just a minute. Hey, can you rewind? I want to hear more about it. Yeah. Uh, and I actually get to do that here. And I think it's really cool for them. I have not seen this happen where we do it anyplace else. And like an interview type of more of a conversation. It's less of an interview, more of a conversa- conversation. Yeah tone behind it so no. thank you for being here man yeah man uh, I, I really enjoyed it and uh i found some pieces today that i didn't know were there yeah that's another thing is talking stuff out like that i noticed that's another common denominator here's people will have some little bit of like hmm now that i talk that out i see something a little differently than i than i did before yeah uh, so a lot of times i come to my answers that same thing when i'm talking to my sponsor when i'm talking this stuff out mm. And I had some fear around doing the podcast today because a lot of this stuff nobody knows other than my sponsor you know, and uh, this this vulnerability that I feel, yeah, uh, putting yourself out there for sure, yeah, is uh, it's worth it to me though because yeah. I I hope it helps if it helps one person, you yep. know, then it was worth every minute. That's exactly the key, man. And, and are you, we know as well as anything that there's somebody out there that needs to hear this one, yeah. you know, and that's that's when people doubt themselves about whether they have something to talk about. Because I like to get guys like you know in their first year of recovery on here too, you know, because sure. that's cool too, you know, and they say, why haven't been around long enough? It doesn't matter. No, really, no. You've got a unique perspective that somebody out there will hear, and, and they will uh, 
connect to. You're not got a letter, and I get letters. I got a letter, email the other day from a gal in Cal in Los Angeles that was 13 days sober and had fell into the podcast and sent, took the time to send me a little email telling me how much she got out of it and that it had uh, moved her. Oh wow! And uh, and I get those kind of things coming around and they're up ticking a little bit. And but that's the first one from all the way across the country like that. That's unreal, man. Yeah, that's that beautiful. Really cool stuff that uh, that that you get to reach out and participate in my recovery in a way in a very unique manner. You yeah. Know? Good for it's, you, man. It's, it's and it's fun too. It's a great know? mission. Yeah, I like it. Don't you think it's fun? Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time. It's, here. Uh, it's 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 a fun thing to do. So oh, we will close up. Uh, I'll get back to those. Uh, I'll do want to get. I'll maybe get you to text me or something to make sure I have the links right. Yeah, for the things you want to make sure people can get to if they sure. want to. We'll do that. And, um, the uh, we'll, we'll talk about dtmww.net. That's my website for my woodworking business. Uh, music wrapped around this is Darren Frank. Go to twelve step. Go to Amazon and get Twelve Step Spiritual Recovery by James Christopher Cohn. And I feel like I'm missing one thing. Spiritualunderground.org. You can find this podcast on everything. I actually have been putting it out on YouTube now too. You know, it's just the audio, but a lot of people access their podcasts through YouTube Medium too. So uh, I want to kind of I'm going to try to get the video element in uh, before too awful long. But right now the audio is available there too. Uh, we will close out this episode. Thank you all for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner today. Peace out. You give your love and the selfish they just take. Not concerned about the heart that they will break.